Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. I think maybe Dallas and Connie should just stay up here and preach. What do you all think? Isn't it wonderful to hear the Word of God from young people, and especially those who do it with such grace? And seriousness, beautiful. Forty years ago, April 21, 1980, finish line, Boston Marathon. Rosie Ruiz ran across the line, the first female finisher, not that far over the record finishing time for a woman in the Boston Marathon, to place first in that year's marathon. It was one of those moments that probably most runners hope for and yearn for and dream about. Maybe that time I will be able to capture first and come across the finish line as the winner. It was the moment in Rosie's life without question. The granddaddy of all the marathons, and here she had won it, first place, women's division. And it wasn't just that she had finished, not just that she had won it, not just that she was in near record time, but in the television interview after having won, it was her poise and her grace. In fact, strangely, it was that she looked so good. She wasn't sweating that much. Every hair was in place. She was well put together. Is there no end to this woman's talent? How did you do that? She was interviewed by Catherine Switzer, herself a well-known runner, but on that day, the microphone and the TV camera were hers, and she interviewed Rosie Ruiz, 26-year-old winner, and it was right there that things started to go wrong. Because Catherine Switzer asked Rosie Ruiz about her interval training. Tell me about your intervals. Now, just in case you're not familiar with running terminology, intervals is that method of training in which a runner will run hard for a period of time and then back way down. Maybe walk or maybe jog for a little period and then run hard again and then back down and walk and jog. It's a well-known way to train. And there was Catherine Switzer asking Rosie Ruiz, How was your, tell me about your intervals. How do you do with those? And the mic is in her face on live TV and Rosie Ruiz responded with a question of her own. What are intervals? Live TV. What are intervals? It's like asking a first-year resident or a first-year resident asking, what's a stethoscope? Or a first-year dentist, what's a drill? Or a first-year pilot, what's a logbook? What are intervals? Beg your pardon? And it was right then that the spotlight turned on. And that spotlight began to examine Rosie's life and began to reveal some of those dark corners that I'm sure she hoped would never be revealed. Dark corners that gave evidence to rather long-term cheating and lying. 
Dark corners that even shone on the New York City Marathon, the marathon she had run in order to qualify for Boston. Well, I say she had run. Actually, the truth is, for most of it, she had ridden the subway, telling people that she had sprained her ankle, but she wanted to be at the finish line. It even shone the light on that day's Boston Marathon as it was realized that nobody had seen Rosie for the first 25 miles. And witnesses came forward that said, we saw her. We saw her when she ducked onto the track one mile from the finish line. And thus it was that Rosie was stripped of her medal and held up to ridicule and shame. What are intervals? Sometimes we reveal a lot by a question. That story has actually concerned me now for a couple of weeks as I've thought about it. It's concerned me not because I'm concerned that you may not know what intervals are or that you're going to try to run the last mile of the Boston Marathon. It has concerned me for this reason. It's left me wondering, just wondering, if there are churches, churches like this one, if there are churches filled with worshipers, with members, with people who call themselves disciples, it's left me wondering, are there churches where people might ask, what is faith? What is faith? A question like that would reveal a great deal about the level of maturity that those same people might have on their discipleship journey. So just what is faith? It's a very basic element in the discipleship process. What is it? Just saying, I believe? Is it looking at a statement of beliefs, maybe... 28 of them saying, I affirm? Is it reading a creed and saying, I agree with all of that? What is faith? Well, we're going to go to a book in the Bible just close to the end of Scripture called James. The book of James, chapter 2. You know about James. James is that book that scholars will tell you kind of jumps around. It's a bit hard to find the thematic thread that holds the book together. But I, I think, I don't mean to overstate the case, I think I know what the thread in James is. The thread in James is walking the walk. James is not real big on talking the talk, belief. He's very big on walking the walk, showing by your life your degree of faith. So we're going to turn to James and, and kind of ask James that question. James, talk to us about faith, true faith. Where does it play into the discipleship journey? Especially when we come to church and we open a bulletin and we look at the title of the sermon, and the title of the sermon is Doing. What does that have to do with faith? Well, maybe James can help us. So we're going to read, we're going to work our way through the passage, read so well by Kai and Dallas. 
We're going to start with one verse. It's verse 14 of chapter 2 because in that one verse and in the questions James asks, in that one verse, we really have the entire theme of this whole section. If you understand that one verse, you understand the section. So let's read it. James 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if people claim to have faith but have no deeds? Can such faith save them? What good is that? What good is it if you claim to believe the plane will get you to the destination but you'll never board? What good is that? Makes me think of the guy that said, it's not flying that scares me nearly as much as it is crashing. (laughs) Well, maybe somebody is so overwhelmed by that fear, they can't quite exercise the faith required to get on board. That's James's question. He's apparently talking to people of faith, people who claim to believe. And he asks them that probing question, what good is that? You see, I've got faith, and there's no action. Is that faith? Next, he moves to an illustration. Uh, The first word of the next verse is suppose, suppose. It's like saying, for example, or take for instance, or let me illustrate. Notice what he does next in verse 15, suppose. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. What good is it, James asks. You can make all kinds of professions, all kinds of statements about the robust reality of your faith. But suppose... Now, he's talking about a brother or sister. In other words, somebody who's part of the family. He's not even talking about somebody out there in the larger world. He says, suppose a brother or sister comes in, sits down to you, sits down next to you in church. You can hear their stomach growling. You can see them shivering a bit. You put your arm around them. You say to them, God bless you, brother. God loves you, sister. You know what? This week, I'm going to move you to the top of my prayer list. All week long, I'll be praying for you. You have a great week. And James is like, what is that? If you have the resources, if you have the ability to help them, then why are you saying, I'll pray for you? They don't need your prayers. They need something to eat. And if you can do that, then where's your faith? Is that true faith? Years ago, I went to a stress management workshop. It wasn't too long after having been out of seminary. I thought at the time I had a little bit of stress. So I'll go learn about stress. I don't remember really much at all about that workshop. Except one thing the teacher said. She said a lot of people cause themselves a lot of stress by worrying about problems that don't belong to them. I thought, okay, well, that makes sense. How do I know if a problem is mine or it belongs to someone else? She answered that question. She said, here's how you determine whether or not a problem is yours or not. Just ask yourself this one simple question. Do I have the solution? 
Can I fix the problem? And she said, if the answer to that is yes, I have the solution, I have the ability to fix it, then fix it. Stop worrying about it. Just fix it. If you don't have the solution, it's not your problem. It belongs to whoever does have the solution. That's lingered around in my mind many times, and I think it applies exactly right here in what James is saying. James is saying if that person comes in and sits down and you have the ability to do something about it, he asks a curious question. Where is your faith? Because if you had true faith, James is saying, you would do it. But he's not done yet. Because there are apparently people who have been talking about how great and deep and strong their faith is. Apparently they've been making it known to others, we have great faith. Look at our faith. James is going to say to them, look, the way you know about your faith, about whether or not it's healthy or unhealthy, robust or not, the way you know about that is not by looking at your faith, but by looking at your deeds. Your actions, that is what will tell you what your faith is like. So notice how he says it back to James chapter 2, verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there's one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. No big deal what you believe unless it is producing change and action in your life. Now we're kind of starting to get on to why we don't spend all that much time with James. It's like, whoa, makes me uncomfortable to read that. But James has, James has one more step to take. He's going to give us an illustration of what he's been talking about. In fact, he's going to give us two. He's going to give us an illustration in the life of Abraham and he's going to give us an illustration in the life of Rahab, of his very principles, what he's exactly talking about. It's as though James has said, says, I'm going to cover the whole spectrum of people, from the best of us to the worst of us. And I'll show you that this principle is true in every one of those lives. So verse 20, you foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the Scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that people are justified by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So I wonder if we were to pass out paper and pencils and we were each one to try to summarize what James is saying in this section. Capture it as briefly as you can. I wonder what we would come up with. I spent some time on that this week, and I finally decided here is how I would summarize what James is saying. Three words. 
True faith acts. True faith acts. If you want a different word, true faith does. In other words, true faith is not a mental assent to some set of beliefs. It's not just agreeing with some statement. It's not even just professing belief. It is a choice that is so profound and so robust that it issues forth in action. True faith acts. Now, unless I miss my guess, somebody out there is a bit uncomfortable with James about right now because that passage we just read, you know, puts him at odds, apparently, with another key New Testament writer named Paul, the Apostle Paul, who, when you read him, affirms the fact that we are saved by grace alone and that that grace is received through faith. And now James is saying, well, 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 wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. Faith and works work together on this. And you think, so what do we do with this? Well, there's a great deal of scholarly debate about Paul and James, underlining the fact that Paul and James appear to be going in different directions. In fact, the disciples of Paul and the disciples of James have often experienced that. None other than the great Protestant reformer Martin Luther. He and James, they weren't on talking terms. James and Martin, no, they didn't get along that well. In fact, when Martin Luther came to the statement in Paul that we are justified by faith, it is said that he wrote in the margin of his Bible alone and underlined it. We are justified by faith alone. And then you've got over here James saying, well, <laughs> actually, and he's talking about faith and works. I can't solve all the dilemma that exists because of that, but I can't say this. I wonder, I just wonder, if Paul and James were here on the platform talking today, if Paul wouldn't say on the one hand, it is a gift of God because of His grace that we receive by faith alone. And James would say, yeah, 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 I, I can go with that. I accept that. But... Let me tell you what kind of faith that is. Let me just unpack, Paul, your word faith. I accept it fully by faith, but you have to understand what faith means. Because, James says, we've got too many people claiming to be disciples being interviewed by the world who look at the camera and say, well, now, what is faith? So James says, I'll define it for you. Faith, true faith, acts. You cannot separate it from deeds. They go together. And that's really the point of what Philip Yancey says in his book, Prayer Does It Make Any Difference? Listen to his words. 
I receive a newsletter, he writes, from the Center for Action and Contemplation. And together, those two words encompass most of what we are called to do in following Jesus. The founder of the center says, I've often told folks that the most important word is our title is not action, nor even contemplation, but and. And. Center for action and contemplation. Beliefs and deeds. Faith and works. Because the true faith that accesses and receives the grace of God as a free gift is so robust and vital that it is driven out of itself to act, to action. William Booth knew that. William Booth, along with his wife Catherine, were the founders, co-founders of the Salvation Army. Now, there's a group that has pretty clear in their minds that true faith acts. Listen to what Booth said. Faith and works, he said, should travel side by side, step answering step, like the legs of men walking. First faith, then works, and then faith again, and then works again, until you can scarcely distinguish which is one and which is the other. Wow. Wow. That's a bit challenging for those of us who are deeply and correctly invested in the fact that salvation is a free gift. But we have to remember something. It's like Dallas Willard says. Grace, says Willard, is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to merit and earning but it's not opposed to effort somewhere we got the idea that we travel to heaven in a lazy boy we accept Jesus and we recline and it's from there to glory all in my lazy boy in my TV room isn't God good and James comes along and says whoa, 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 whoa wait a minute is that what you call faith let me tell you what faith is. Faith is that which not only receives what is given, but gives what has been received. That's faith. True faith acts. So let me locate us again. Let, let me remind us where we are. Five-part series, back to basics. First two sermons in that series were the basic acts of placing our faith and trust in Jesus and receiving the gift of His salvation. Second was coming to Him in repentance for our sins. And then the next three, the last three sermons, we've been talking about the basics of how to actually live the discipleship journey. What does it mean practically, day to day? How do I live it? Three things. First one, listening. Listening to God principally through Scripture. Second one is speaking. Speaking to God in the discipline of prayer. And now today is the third one. Doing. So the question becomes, well, what is it that we do? Very simple. We do something about what we got out of the first two. So for example, let's say that 
you got up this morning and you had your devotional time listening, trying to hear the voice of God in Scripture, and as you listened, you opened Scripture to Ephesians and you read those verses at the end of the fourth chapter, those last verses, where Paul says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger along with slander and every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as God in Christ has forgiven you. You read that. You linger over that. That's listening. And then you speak. You kneel in prayer. And that text is still kind of rolling around in your mind. And as you pray, a face comes to mind. Someone you don't like. And honestly, there's been some bad bloods and bad words and bad actions exchanged. And it's as though you can't get that out of your mind. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander. Be kind, forgiving. That's the first two. If you're a person of faith, then your faith will move you to get up, to walk out, and to do something about what has happened. And that right there, that's the discipleship journey. Or maybe as you read this morning, you read the words of Jesus. When he says to his followers, I did not come to be served, but to serve. And that's what you read. And then as you're praying, you're thinking about your prayer and what you've read, and suddenly you remember two or three times this last week, tensions at home. Why am I always the one doing the vacuuming? Why am I always the one washing and folding clothes? Why, am I, why do I have to be the one cleaning the table and Washing that. I'm tired. I'm stressed. Tension. So in your prayer, you pray about that. But God, I'm, I'm sick and tired. You know, I don't want to do that. And you hear the voice of Jesus. I did not come to be served, but to serve. Jesus, come on. I'm carrying a big part of the load around here. And Jesus says, you know, for you to have a servant's heart will drive you into the laundry room and into the kitchen. For me to have a servant's heart, it drove me to Calvary. I think you can manage the laundry room and the kitchen. <laughs> and true faith will draw you up from your knees to do something about what you got out of the first two. So you just keep listening and speaking, listening and speaking, and you will find that the, the topics will change. One day it has to do with truth-telling. Another day it has to do with financial integrity. Another day it has to do with healthy sexuality. And you just keep having that dialogue, and faith keeps driving you over here to action. Because true faith acts. And today's scripture, 
It has two or three different themes, but let me remind you of one theme that came right at the beginning. It's those questions again. Remember when Paul said, suppose? I want to reread that to you, but this time from the message. Listen to how Peterson paraphrased it. For instance, he says, for instance, you come upon an old friend dressed in rags and half-starved and say, good morning, friend. Be clothed in Christ. Be filled with the Spirit and walk off without providing so much as a coat or a cup of soup. Where does that get you? Isn't it obvious that God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense? Now, that's a line. Isn't it obvious that God talk without, without God acts is outrageous nonsense? True faith acts. So Tony Campolo, you remember the name. I spoke of him a week or two ago. Tony Campolo tells of landing, airline flight, from out of town back home and having forgotten until he deplaned that he was supposed to be speaking that day in just a bit for a women's event, a group of women who had gathered together for World Prayer Day. He was supposed to be speaking there. He panicked, still had enough time, looked at his watch, raced over there, got to the place, still figuring out in his head, this is what I'm going to say. He got there in time. The woman who was in charge was saying some things about a, a church and a missionary down in Venezuela that was in real need. Now, Campolo picks it up at that point with his words. She read this letter from this missionary who had a hospital, and they desperately needed $5,000 to put an extension on the hospital because they couldn't handle all the patients. She turned to me, that is, the woman in charge of the event. She turned to me and she said, Reverend, would you please lead us in prayer that the Lord would provide for our sister in Venezuela? And I said, no. <laughs> I guess that's the direct approach, huh? She was taken back by that. I stood up and I said, I tell you what I will do. And it was a good day to pull it off because all I had in my pocket was $2.25. I pulled out my wallet, pulled out the two dollars and a quarter, and I slapped it down on the pulpit and said, that's all the money I'm carrying, Madam Chairman. I want you to put all the cash you're carrying on the pulpit. There were about a thousand women in this group. I said, I'm going to ask each of you to do the same. No checks, just the cash you're carrying. Bring it up, lay it on the altar. We'll count up all the money, and if we don't have enough, I'll ask God to write a check for the difference. The woman took out $110 of unadulterated cash and put it with the $2.25. $110 in cash? Why didn't I marry someone like that? I said, we're on our way. We've got $112.25. You're next. And I pointed to the woman on the front row. She looked around, and I said, I'm serious. Come up here and put your money on the altar. You see, I come from a black church, he says, and you know that's the way you take up an offering. And she sheepishly came up and put her money on it. And I said, okay, let's line up one by one. Do it one by one. And they did it. Money kept piling up and piling up and piling up. When it was all over, we counted the cash. We had over $7,000 instead of the five that was needed. And I know we didn't get it all, says Campola, because I could see the women giving me dirty looks as they walked by. <laughs> <laughs> and I said to them, the sheer audacity of asking God for 5000 when God has already provided you with over 7000 The audacity. Because true faith acts. I have a conviction. I've had it for a long time. 
I have a conviction that when a church has a legitimate need, God has provided for that need. He's provided you. He's provided me. It's a question of whether or not we have enough faith or whether we stand there looking into the lens of the TV camera saying, what's faith? What's faith? Because of that, I want to give you an opportunity to respond. Three simple ways. Three possibilities, maybe two or three of them. First one, reach into the back of the hymnal rack right in front of you and take out these little business size cards. They say back to basics on one side, and on the other side they say, today I commit to daily simple acts of service to God and others. That's all. I make a commitment. Make sure everyone on your pew has one. Today I make a, a commitment to daily simple acts of service. I want to encourage you to sign that and to date it, that that's a, a choice you're making today. What does that mean? It means wherever you go, whatever you do, you are aware of need, and you're willing to step up. You have a servant's heart. So if it's at the office, colleague is overwhelmed, you step into that. Is there some way I can help you? Can I support you? If you're at home, dad, mom, or a child, take a load off for a bit. I'll step in. I'll take care of that. It's just staying aware, alert to those opportunities to show that Jesus has given us a servant's heart because we are people of true faith. That's the first way of responding. Sign it, date it, put it in your Bible, take it with you and live it. Second possible way to respond is to take the bigger card out of that rack in front of you, the one that says welcome, just like this. You connect card. Give us your contact info. On the back, check the one that is true for you, a way you would like to get involved, a way you would like to join others in serving. Leave it at the welcome center. Third way, our church has some needs, some true needs. Remember that conviction? If a church has needs, God has provided for them. Now, don't get, don't get too worried. I left my wallet in my office. But I do believe that there is a way we can step into those needs. There are many of them. I'm only going to mention two, just two. First one is in children's Sabbath schools. Our younger children's Sabbath schools. You know that age in a family's life where mom and dad are overwhelmed with one or two or three, four kids, trying to get them all out the door, trying to get them here on time, trying to get them into the right Sabbath school rooms. They're stressed out. They're tired. And then they're asked, would you step up and be the teacher? Would you be the greeter? Would you hold this Sabbath school together? And they're like, oh, that's why we're coming here, so someone else can help teach them. We have a great need in that area. You know the truth, and so do I. As go the children, so goes the church. That's a critical need. Their children's Sabbath schools, ministry attendance out at the Welcome Center in the lobby. Ask Jesus, is that what you want me to do? I'll step into that space. I'll be one that comes in and who greets and gets to know people, who helps bind them together and becomes a backbone in a children's Sabbath school ministry. That's one need. Second need, 
our outreach, our outreach ministry. You heard Pastor Philip up here talking about what our young adults, folks, our young adults still studying, haven't had a chance to build up a whole lot by means of what this world offers, and yet they're out, they're doing, they're active in human need. If you want to be part of that, we've got many opportunities with our U-Reach program. You want to make a difference in a young person's life, then mentor and tutor a student. Or maybe you want to become a driver for Axe Transit, helping those who can no longer get around by themselves. Work with Meals on Wheels. Become a volunteer down at Relive Thrift. There are many places where you can get involved. And roll your arms up and be connected to human need. Two needs. We have that need, and so do others. And God has provided for that need. He's given you faith. Faith enough to receive the free gift of His grace. And now the question is, is it faith enough to act? Just out at the Welcome Center, you can answer. And so there stood Rosie, just won the Boston Marathon, and looked into the camera and said, what are intervals? But there we are. In a marathon called the Discipleship Journey with Jesus. And we're looking at the world. Are we asking, what is faith? Or are we ready to answer the question they're asking of us? Which is the question, how is your faith? While you decide, just remember... True faith acts.